Our sermon today is taken from Acts 4, verses 1 to 22. Here is the word of God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Thus says the Lord. Before we begin with our sermon, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless it to our hearts and that you would be glorified today, Lord, uh, in this worship service. Thank you so much. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, he was called to appear before a religious assembly, and to account for his actions. You see, Luther had now come to believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, in opposition to the teaching of Rome. 
And when he was ordered by the religious authorities to recant of his beliefs in that extremely hostile environment, he refused and boldly asserted, unless I am convinced with evidence from the scripture or from plain reason, then I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Now, little did Luther know that the Lord would use his faithful witness to ignite or start the Protestant Reformation, which was a movement that changed the entire world as we know it. As a Christian, have you ever wondered how you would respond personally if you were summoned by a group of unbelievers and asked by them to give account of your faith in Christ? Perhaps you've even wondered how you would respond if you were asked to deny your faith in Christ under the threat of persecution or death. Would you stand firm in the faith in those circumstances? Well, in our passage today, Peter and John find themselves in a very similar situation, right? As they were arrested and brought before the religious leaders. And they were asked to explain the healing of a man who was unable to walk from birth. And so from the response of Peter and John today in Acts chapter 4 this morning, I think we can learn some principles for how to be faithful to Christ whenever we experience persecution on account of our faith. And what I want us to notice this morning in our passage today is there are three ways that we can be faithful witnesses for Christ in the midst of persecution. So to be faithful witnesses for Christ, we should, first of all, expect to encounter opposition, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we should be filled with the Spirit, verses 5 through 10. And lastly, in order to be faithful witnesses for Christ in the face of persecution, we should proclaim that Jesus is the only way of salvation, verses 11 and 12. But first, we should expect to encounter opposition as Christians. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, that is, Peter and John. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So here we're told, right, that both Peter and John faced opposition for the sake of the gospel. And this is the very first time uh, since the establishment of the church in the book of Acts that we begin to see Christians experience persecution for their faith. And verse 1 tells us that both Peter and John were opposed by the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a group of wealthy Jews that made up the body, the religious body, called the Sanhedrin. And we're told that the reason that the Sadducees were so greatly annoyed at Peter and John was because they were teaching the people about Jesus and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. In fact, they were so very annoyed that they then arrested Peter and John and threw them in prison. And why? Why did they do this? Why did they respond with such hostility 
in opposition to the message of the gospel. Well, notice that uh, our text gives us at least two reasons why they responded this way, two reasons for their actions. The first is practical, and the second one is theological. First, they were practically annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people. You see, in their very own personal opinion was that teaching was something to be done by a person who was qualified, right? By a person who had the right credentials. In their eyes, a person had to be super qualified in order to teach the people. And so he at least had to be educated in the law of Moses. And neither Peter and John, you see, met that criteria. And so they despised them for it. And the second reason was that uh, they were so greatly annoyed at Peter and John was primarily theological because they misunderstood the teaching of the Bible, the Sadducees, that is. You see, the Sadducees denied things like the resurrection, the afterlife, and the existence of angels and demons. And so when Peter and John preached about Jesus and used his death as an example of the resurrection, right, the doctrine of the resurrection, the Sadducees were therefore furious. Why? Because they were the very ones who rejected Jesus and crucified him. And so if it's true that Jesus was then resurrected, then they, the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection, would be exposed as false teachers before the people. And so in pride, you see, they were not willing to admit that their teaching was wrong. So they responded by arresting Peter and John and throwing them in prison. You see, the truth about the resurrection flew directly in the face of their quote-unquote religion so that it had to be suppressed by them. You see, by continuing to deny the resurrection, the, the Sadducees chose to continue on practicing their religion and having people admire them for their gifts over a true relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this kind of thing happens all too often in the church today, where people who are very religious in the sense that they go to church regularly, they even serve the church uh, through various involvement with uh, ministries and programs, but what they lack is a real and genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because like the Sadducees, they love to practice religion and have people admire them for their tremendous spiritual gifts, but they never really take the time and effort to humbly submit to the teaching of the Bible. You see, much like the Sadducees, their service to God is on their own terms and according to their own understanding. And unfortunately, any teaching that contradicts their very own thoughts and opinions becomes annoying to them. And so they close their ears to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is proclaimed in the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, I pray that this is not the case with any one of us today. If you're a Christian and you are struggling with this, if you're struggling with leaning on your own understanding about the doctrine of the resurrection, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the existence of good and evil in the world, whatever it is, brothers and sisters, please go to God in prayer and ask him 
for the ability to humbly submit to him and to hear his voice as he is revealed in the scripture. You know, Dr. Mark Roberts, in a devotional called Life for Leaders, says this, and I quote, If we want to hear the voice of God, we should pay attention to Jesus. We hear God's voice in the teachings of Jesus as they are portrayed in the Bible Gospels. We hear God's voice through the actions of Jesus as they demonstrate and dramatize the good news of the kingdom of God. We hear God's voice in the community of Jesus, the church, instructed in the scriptures and bearing witness to Jesus in his inspired word and discerning God's guidance for us today. You see, as Christians, it's easy for us to fill our lives with all sorts of good things like studying theology and giving to the poor providing for our families, running our business, raising our children, and so on, that we sometimes forget to ask ourselves, am I truly paying attention to Jesus? Am I hearing the voice of the Word who was made flesh? You see, sometimes the very opposition we face as Christians comes from the very sin that is in our own hearts, the pride that keeps us from peering into the scriptures and embracing the truth about who God really is and who we are before a righteous and holy God. Perhaps we're even afraid of what we might find out about ourselves. Now, I, I want us to notice something interesting in verse 4, that in spite of the opposition and arrest of Peter and John, we're told that many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. You see, what this is telling us is that in spite of the hostility, all the hostility and opposition from the religious leaders, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ miraculously grew in number. In fact, the church grew so much that in Acts chapter 5, by the time we get to Acts chapter 5, we're told that there were multitudes of men and women who were constantly being added to the church. In fact, it was so very large that it could no longer be numbered. You see, it's a general truth that I think has been confirmed by history as well that the church ironically grows during times of persecution. And this is why the famous theologian Tertullian once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because persecution, ironically, actually increases the church's numbers. And I know this seems uh, contrary to logic to think this way because the very reason that the church is being persecuted by unbelievers is so that it might be utterly destroyed from the earth forever. But you see, Jesus promised us, right, that he would build his church, that the gates of hell would never prevail against it. And this is why when early Christians were persecuted and murdered in large numbers by being burned at the stake or fed to wild animals, Christianity went on to become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. Even in our very own time, look at how the number 
of Christians in China has increased despite the fact that they're being persecuted by the Communist Party. Friends, all these things should definitely encourage us to be faithful as believers in times of persecution, knowing that God is in control and that he loves us and works all things together for our good as his people. And so as Christians, we should expect to find opposition if we are faithful witnesses of God. And our second point is to be faithful witnesses for Christ, we should be filled with the Spirit. Look at verses 5 through 10 with me. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to the crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. So here we see that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he began his defense before the religious council. And notice that Peter is not so much interested in defending himself before the members of the Sanhedrin as he is and using this as an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. I mean, think about it. Peter could have appealed to the law uh, uh, and argued that he and John had a right to be teaching in the courtyard, or he could have even denied altogether that he had healed the lame man. But you see, instead, Peter saw his trial as an opportunity to witness to the religious leaders about Christ. So one of the signs, brothers and sisters, that a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit, is that we have a genuine desire to tell people about Jesus, regardless of our circumstances. We are concerned about sharing the gospel with those who are lost. You see, one of the benefits of the Spirit's work in our lives is that we as Christians become less self-centered and more God-centered. And the more we die to self, you see, the more we live to God. And the more we live for God, the more we will seize every opportunity we can to share the gospel with unbelievers. Even if, like Peter, the opportunity comes to us by way of our suffering, right? By suffering for righteousness' sake. You know, uh, Vision Beyond Borders is a ministry that specializes in taking the Bible to China and other parts of Asia. Well, one of their newsletters spoke of a Christian evangelist who was committed to taking the gospel to every Buddhist monastery in Asia. Well, several years ago, as he and a friend were heading to a village to share the gospel, they offered a ride to a woman they saw 
walking along the road. And when they arrived at her house, she invited them in for dinner. And after dinner, they showed a film to, uh, uh, of Jesus to her and some of her neighbors, who she also had invited over for dinner. Now, surprisingly, some of the neighbors called the police on this evangelist, and he was arrested and taken to prison to spend several months there. After he was released, however, he was extremely excited. And I want you to listen to how he interpreted his arrest and time in prison in his report to this newsletter. He said, and I quote, you'll never guess what God did. He allowed us to go to prison to bring the gospel to prisoners. We shared the gospel with 180 men, led 20 to faith in Christ, and even baptized eight people in prison. And now you see, he is involved in a prison ministry. You see, like Peter, this evangelist used his wrongful imprisonment as an opportunity to share the gospel with others. And that's genuine evidence, brothers and sisters, of living a spirit-filled life as a Christian. Now, you still might be wondering, well, what does all this mean? Uh, I'm st I still don't understand. I'm confused and still don't understand what it really means to be filled with the Spirit. Well, there's a passage in Acts chapter 5 that sort of gives us a clue about what it means. In chapter 5, verse 15, we read of a, a, another incident, a, a similar incident, where a high priest of the Sadducees and all who were with him were filled with jealousy so that they arrested the apostles again and put them in prison. And this means that they were so overwhelmed with jealousy that they were controlled by it. Jealousy literally controlled their actions and caused them to put the apostles in prison. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul commands believers not to be drunk with wine but to be filled with the Spirit. So just like a person who is drunk is controlled by wine, even so, a person who is Spirit-filled is under the control of the Holy Spirit. He is led by the Spirit so that it influences everything he does. And this means that the new birth by the power of the Spirit is somewhat different from the command for us as Christians to be filled with the Spirit. How so? Well, the new birth takes place at the very moment that we're saved by God, right? God gives us His Spirit and enables us uh, to embrace Christ by faith. And so uh, the possession of the Spirit is a fact or something that is a genuine reality for believers in the moment they are saved. But the act of being filled with the Spirit has more to do with our day-by-day, -day, daily experience of the Spirit's influence on our lives. Because on some days as believers, we feel more of the Spirit's presence in our lives than at other times. And some believers may even experience the Spirit's presence more so than other believers will. Nevertheless, I think uh, as Christians, God commands all of us to be filled with the Spirit, to live our lives in such a way that the Spirit's influence over us is significant.
Now, there are a couple things that I would like to point out with relation to our living spirit-filled lives as believers. A couple of misunderstandings that we might have with respect to being persecuted. The first misunderstanding is that if we're living faithful and spirit-filled lives as believers, then God himself will keep us from being persecuted. And this is very important because there are many Christians who believe that if they're being faithful to God in their lives, uh, they shouldn't experience any persecution, right? Any form of persecution. That all of their Christian lives will just flow and go smoothly. And then when they do experience hardships, they're completely devastated by it. They say, um, you know, I don't understand what's happening. I've been faithful to God. Uh, so why did I lose my job? Why am I being attacked by my co-workers? Why isn't God protecting me as a believer? Now, obviously, brothers and sisters, this is not the way that Peter interpreted his situation in our passage today. You see, Peter was also a godly man who was faithful to God and filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, God allowed Peter to suffer. Yes, to endure persecution for the kingdom's sake. And it wasn't because of anything that he'd done. And there was certainly nothing he deserved to be, to do, uh, to be thrown into prison. In fact, what Peter did was actually extremely good by healing the blind man. But you see, Peter didn't interpret his persecution as a sign that God was punishing him or failing to protect him as a believer. And so I think the truth is that you can be filled with the Spirit as a Christian and still experience suffering. suffering. As a matter of fact, because you're filled with the Spirit in the world, you actually will experience probably more suffering as you are more like Christ. The second thing I want to point out is the misunderstanding that Christians are only persecuted by people who are outside the church, by secular people in the world. You see, as Christians, I think we kind of expect unbelievers to treat us badly and attack us, right? But for some reason, I think we're surprised when it comes from people who are in the church, from people who profess to be Christians. But you see, in our passage today, it's the religious leaders who attack the apostles. It's the religious leaders who arrest them and throw them in prison. In fact, it was the very same religious establishment that opposed and persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has also been true throughout church history, where opposition to those who proclaim the gospel, the true gospel, often comes from those who belong to the church, those who feel that their power and privileges are being threatened. And we talked about Martin Luther earlier, right? How he was opposed by the Church of Rome for preaching the true gospel. Perhaps uh, you or someone you know has been deeply wounded by someone in the church and the situation got so bad that you felt you had no other option but to leave the church altogether. And trust me, brothers and sisters, I, I understand how hard it is when you feel like you're being attacked by another believer by people who profess to know and love God. That hurts. That doesn't feel good at all. But if this is the case for you, brothers and sisters, I do hope 
that you did not stop going to church altogether and abandon your faith in Christ. Because our text tells us that very often persecution comes from those who are within the church, sadly. And it's hard, hard for us to experience this as believers. And it's hard, as hard as it is for us to experience this, I think God calls us to continue on faithfully serving him in the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be faithful witnesses for Christ, we should expect to encounter opposition. Second, we should be filled with the Spirit. And lastly, we should proclaim as Christians boldly that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Look at verse 11. Here Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the chief cornerstone. So in his response to the opposition of the religious leader, Peter quotes a prophecy from Psalm 118 in order to convict them of their guilt for crucifying the Messiah and also to urge them to repent so that they would not go on in their sin and perish. You see, Psalm 118 prophesied that the Messiah would be rejected, particularly by the builders. And who were they? Well, they were the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, those who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of God's people. And that's why in the middle of verse 11, Peter condemned them for rejecting Jesus. And so Peter identifies the religious leaders as the builders who rejected the cornerstone by killing Jesus and persecuting his church. Mark Brown says, the cornerstone, cornerstone served two functions. First, it served as the angle stone from which plum was measured in two directions. If the cornerstone was off, then the walls would not be square. Second, the cornerstone bears the entire weight of both walls. So an imperfection in the cornerstone could not only throw the entire building out of whack, but it would also bring down both walls if it collapsed under the weight. It's the most important stone in the entire building, end quote. Now, how ironic is it that those who should have known better than anyone else, the religious elite, were so very foolish that they rejected the Messiah, the very foundation stone of their entire religion and history. And so what Peter says in verse 12 then is just the logical outcome for them, for their rejecting Jesus. And that was that if they continued on in their unbelief, then there was no other way that they could be saved. Because if you remove the cornerstone and reject it, the entire building will collapse. Look at what Peter says in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. See, what Peter is telling us here is that as far as the way of salvation is concerned, 
Christianity is absolutely an exclusive religion. We are different from every other religion in the world because there is no way for a person to be saved except one way, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, we live in a postmodern and a very pluralistic society, any claim by us as Christians to absolute truth that like Jesus is the only way is rejected utterly by the vast majority of people in our day. And so as Christians, we often get accused of being narrow-minded bigots who think that all the other religions in the world are wrong and we alone have the monopoly on truth. We alone know the way while everybody else is wrong. You know, in an interview with Reader's Digest, actress Susan Sarandon was asked if she and her family went to church. And this was her response. No, we do not. I think we have a spiritual family, but we would have no objection to going to church if we could find a church that was connected to the real world and not exclusive. <laughs> You see, people really get offended when we as Christians proclaim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Why? Why did they do this? Probably because the world that we live in today is like a smorgasbord, right? Where we have a large variety of options at our disposal in every different arena of life. Think about it. If you're hungry, you go to McDonald's, or KFC, uh, if you in Indonesia here, you go to Holy Smokes or Nasi Goreng. I don't know. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the options are limitless, right? Similarly, if you're looking for love, you can get involved in small groups or go to nightclubs, browse the internet for dating sites and so on. If you don't like one TV show or movie, you just browse the, uh, the uh, cable streams and find whatever you like there. If you're looking for a church, you can also pick from a large church, right? A large variety of those as well. You get the point, right? So I guess what people just assume is that a person's salvation should work in exactly the same way, that there ought to be many paths to heaven and not just one. That's offensive to them. But you see, that's not what the Bible says. You see, it was Jesus himself who said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You see, as Christians, we proclaim the very same message that Jesus proclaimed because God has determined that the only way of salvation for sinners is through his Son, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And there's absolutely, brothers and sisters, no shame in that. And so as a as opposed to being narrow-minded as Christians, it's actually quite loving for us to reach out to others with a message of the gospel, to tell people that Jesus is the only way of salvation. You know, there's a, a story uh, about Penn Jillette. You may not know who he is, but he was a member of the popular entertainment team of illusionists known as Penn and Teller. He's also an avowed atheist. And there's an interesting story about how a Christian who went to see Penn Jillette 
at a comedy routine in Las Vegas approached him after the show. And he kindly said to him, Mr. Gillette, I wonder if you wouldn't be offended if I gave you a Bible. And so the man gave Mr. Gillette a Bible. Now you would think that as an atheist, Mr. Gillette would have probably been offended by a Christian giving him a Bible. But listen to what he said. I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who do not evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell and not going, getting eternal life or whatever, then the most hateful thing that a man could do would be to not give me a Bible and not tell me about the gospel. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. End quote. And that, you see, that is sharing the gospel with others is far more important than simply getting hit by a truck and saving someone's life. You see, Jesus was not being arrogant at all by claiming to be the only way of salvation, but he was actually telling the truth in love in order to, that people might turn to him and be saved. Brothers and sisters, do you hear the voice of Jesus today calling you? You see, Jesus is reaching out to you even now as we speak and telling you, brothers and sisters, that there's no other way for you to merit God's favor. Nothing you can do but to turn to God and receive Christ by faith. You see, our sin is what separates us from a holy and righteous God. And because God is righteous, our sins must be paid for in full. And that's why in love, Jesus voluntarily offered himself as our substitute to pay the penalty that we owe for sin. And when we receive his sacrifice on our behalf, brothers and sisters, we will spend eternity in God's presence. And so as Christians, we can confidently and boldly proclaim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this message, Lord. Thank you, Father, that Christ is the only way of salvation. That as believers, Lord, we can confidently claim what Jesus himself claimed was that there's no other way for men to be saved but to turn to him, to reach out to him, and to believe in him and embrace him by faith. Help us, Father, to put away all of our religious distractions, all of our activities, all of our uh, negative circumstances, and to turn in to Christ and embrace that message with all of our hearts, that we may serve you, Lord, and continue to evangelize in a world that desperately needs it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.